Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It is good to see you again. Good, good. I've never seen that before. There's like a straight up um, like baby carriage um, parking zone uh, happening right there. That's awesome. That's a good look. I love that. Love that. Um, but nevertheless, it is good to be back with you. I hope you all are enjoying the week of uh, the 4th. Um, and uh, I am excited to share God's word with you. And let us ask for his help as we get ready to do so. Father, in the name of Jesus, you are desperately needed. You're desperately needed, O oh Father, both in the declaration and also in the hearing of your word. Lord God, you understand the disposition of every single heart in the room. You know the unique needs that are pressing on these lives. You know, Lord God, where every family stands, where every person, be it online, in person, or uh, Lord God, a person who's even uh, dialing in virtually. You know where, how far they are from you, whether a person does not know you and they're investigating the claims of Christ for the very first time or maybe for the umpteenth time, but still not clear, still not convinced, not convicted to come to know you. I pray for that person, oh God, that their heart would move forward in faith in you. I pray for that person who has known you for quite some time, oh God, been walking with you for multiple decades, but is feeling somewhat defeated doesn't know, Lord God, if their faith is quite enough, don't know if Jesus is enough, feeling like they need something else, feeling like they're running on four flat tires. I pray, oh God, for that person this morning that you would be their supply. I pray for the person that finds themselves in between those two extremes, oh God, just in the daily rigors of living life and tempted to just do life on the basis of their own strength and agenda. Things are going okay. Not desperately feeling needy, not necessarily feeling overwhelmed in any way, but also not desiring to necessarily reach for you with any real vigor. I pray for that personal God that you would meet every single one of us in our respective places of need for you this morning. I pray, oh God, that you would clarify the gospel, that we would know it more than just words, but you would help us to be able to plug it into a very specific area of our lives. Pray that you would beautify your son, that he would become something that we would be dazzled by. Lord God, wowed by your son, Jesus Christ, and our eyes would lift up. We couldn't help but to behold him because of how beautiful he has become to us. Oh God, would you do that by your spirit this morning? I pray for the person, oh God, who needs to hear a word of specific instruction that you would give doctrine, you would give reproof for the sinner, oh God, all of us are sinners, but for Lord, Lord God, that person that finds themselves embattled in a very specific kind of sin and cannot free themselves, they cannot escape feel hopeless and helpless in terms of repentance. I pray, oh God, that you would provide reproof and you would provide correction for that person who is broken. Uh, Lord God, on a path and needs to be brought back on course. I pray, oh God, for instruction in righteousness for the person who simply is doing the best that they know to do with the cards they have been dealt, but they just don't know their next play. They don't know what to do. Would you give instruction in righteousness? And would you thoroughly furnish all your people for every good work. We need you. Lord God, in all of it, let there be a demonstration of your spirit 
so we would not be able to deny that we have met with the Almighty God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We are still in our series entitled Ecclesiology, which is the study of the the church. Good. I'm glad nobody said please. All right. So we are looking at the, we are doing a study of the church, and in uh, looking at the church, there have been several uh, points that we have hit, and today's kind of big topic, the umbrella is, we're going to be looking at the both visible and the invisible church, the visible and invisible church. To help us appreciate the nature of the church in this way, that it is both visible and invisible, we're going to look just at two verses from the book of Hebrews, but we're going to be spending a lot more time in in many other texts. But it's the two verses that are going to really help us to tee off this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 read this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that, so e- that sticks so close to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just kind of... Looking back just one more second, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Look on the screen behind me, you'll see uh, the image of um, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. If you are a history buff or a sports aficionado, You may be familiar with this group as they are uh, iconic for their accomplishment in beating the Soviet Union in the 1980 Olympics. This was uh, um, an incredible feat as the U.S. had been uh, having a uh, quite meager performance in the Olympic Games, uh, never being able to achieve the goal, but this year they did. As a matter of fact, the moment is such, uh, so historically profound that there's actually a movie uh, that was made about it called Miracle. It came out in 2004. I would recommend you read it as part of your homework for today's message. You can actually watch the movie Miracle, or you can go ahead and just go Google search for, for this moment in history. But why it's important is that um, Herb Brooks, who was the coach of this team, uh, obviously called together a series of young men who were excellent or good at hockey in their own respective ways and places that he had called them from and pulled them together to to, to have this, to to kind of codify this team to play hockey against the Soviets. And in uh, bringing the team together, they had a series of exhibition games where they were uh, beaten, beaten handily. And um, uh, Coach Brooks uh, pulled them aside one night on the ice, uh, as would be depicted in a movie. And you got to go watch this because it's just going to bring tears to your eyes. Uh, but, but, but Coach Brooks brings them together. And immediately after a game, they're already pooped. They're already tired. Uh, and he begins to have them to do suicides on the ice. That is to run back and forth, to run back and forth on the ice. Every time he would blow the whistle, he would say again and again. And finally, um, at a certain mo- a point in the movie where, where the men's uh, uh, endurance and their ability was reaching his end. Some men were, were, were losing their lunch, others gasping for breath. These are professional, high-level uh, hockey players. And uh, he was getting ready to blow the whistle or have the whistle blown by the assistant coach to say, do it again. 
And there's this one man who yells out, he yells out his name. And then Coach Brooks says, well, who do you play for? He says, United States of America. And it was in that moment that Coach Brooks kind of uh, gave us this phrase that I want you to hang on to. He says, listen, when you put on that jersey, you not only represent yourself, but you also represent the other people on this team. And the name on the front of that jersey is a whole lot more important than the one on the back. Now, this, this may be falling on, 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 on hardened ground until you actually see the movie, but, but that particular phrase that when you put on that uniform, you not only represent yourself, but you represent those who are playing with you, and the name on the front is more important than the one on the back. While he was speaking both athletically and patriotically, I believe that there is some truth here for us as the body of Christ. Because what the coach was trying to convey is that, yes, you are individually gifted and talented, and you bring something real and valuable to the table. You got skill. You got real skill and ability. But when you put on that uniform, while your individual identity is a real thing and your individual contribution is a real thing, it is, it is bona fide and it is necessary, you are now playing not only for yourselves, but also for others who wear this uniform. And oh, by the way, the name on the front of that jersey is a whole lot more important than the one on the back. I believe that for the Christian, we ought to also be caught with a similar ethos, a similar mindset. Something that allows us to understand that when we put on Christ, that when we name the name of Jesus Christ, when we officially and effectively and eternally are identified as a Christian, that not only are we a high-level individual contributor who really does have gifts and skills that matter, but I am also on this stage in this moment representing you who are looking back at me. And not only that, but you are representing me when you're out there uh, at Publix and you're doing your things. When you're wearing the jersey of Jesus Christ, I represent you and you are representing me as well, as well as my individual contribution. But at the same time, there is a name on the front of this jersey which is a whole lot more important than the one on the back. We are playing for and towards something a whole lot bigger than ourselves. And so I believe that, that as today's topic, I want to walk us through this, that the local church, that's us, ought to be motivated by its connection to the eternal church and the global church, something bigger than ourselves. Like, 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 I get it. You love the people sitting on your left and right, but you're not only linked to them, you're also linked to those people who come at 930. And you're also linked to all those who name the name of Jesus that are meeting at the respective 8.30s, 9.30s, 11.30s, 12.30s, and 1.30s all over Atlanta and all over the globe. You're connected to them too. And you're also connected to all those who have called on the name of Jesus throughout any time in history that will be gathered around the throne of God as we read during our prayer time in Revelation chapter 7. And we ought to not just realize that, we ought to be encouraged by it. We ought to be motivated in distinct ways. Where do I get this from? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do certain things. And I'm going to go through the let us's in just a moment. But the, the group of witnesses that the, the author is referring to is found in chapter 11. This group of witnesses, they're all found in chapter 11. This, for many of you, is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
And so when you look at the lives of all those people, like the, uh, uh, the Abels and the, and the Abrahams and the Moseses and the Noahs of the world, you are somehow connected to all these people and called to, to recognize that, that our lives, we are witness, they are witnessing our work. And we ought to be encouraged by their presence and watching us. The author is invoking the motif of a stadium, and we are running a race, and the witnesses are the people sitting in the stands. Imagine, if you will, if you were, you know, maybe a high-level tennis player or maybe just a kid tennis player, and you went out and you looked up and you saw John McEnroe, Martina Navratilova, Steffi Graf, or even the Williams sisters sitting in the stands watching you, not with notepads to critique, but to cheer you and to encourage you. That's the kind of imagery that you're being invited into in the first two verses of of Hebrews chapter 12. You're connected to these people and you are to be encouraged by their witness as they're watching your lives and they are cheering you on. Well, how exactly are we to be motivated? There are four distinct ways that I believe that these two verses tell us we ought to be motivated and they are as follows for the note takers in the room. Number one, we are told that we ought to lay aside the weight. There's weight that, that, that slows us down and sets us aside. Number two, we are told to lay aside the sin. This is all found right here in verses one through two. We are told to let us, we are told to run a race with endurance. And then we are told to also look to Jesus. Right there in verses one and two. Four distinct things that we are motivated to do by those who are witnessing our work and encouraging us in the stands of the historic Christian faith. The local church you and me ought to be motivated by its connection to the eternal and the global church. This isn't just poetic, it isn't just pictures, it isn't just philosophical that the church is visible and invisible, it is functional and it is practical. We ought to be encouraged by these things. Well, how exactly are we to do that? Well, when you look at the first verse, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the first one, let us also lay aside every weight. I believe that we are all wearing something or carrying something that is slowing us down in our race for Christ. We are all wearing something or carrying something that is slowing us down. What do I mean? You see, if the, if the, if the author is invoking the, the, the ancient idea of the Olympic Games, where it is that people are running in a stadium, this is why the Olympic runners seek to wear clothing that is as light as possible, so that nothing that I'm naturally wearing or that I'm carrying will slow me down. You see, the weight that sets us aside often is not necessarily sin. This is why it is stuff that can live in our lives indefinitely without being inventoried or set aside because we say, well, this is just natural. Jesus would speak to it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He would say, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than drinking clothing? Now, Jesus isn't saying you should be running around naked and hungry because that's not the image that we get of the disciples. But it is quite clear that Jesus is saying from a, as a matter of prioritization in life, do not let the regular stuff of life that you do indeed have to deal with become weight to weigh you down. We're all wearing something or carrying something that is slowing us down. It's routine stuff. It's weight. Maybe you've got a coffee table filled with bills. Maybe you've got a, a, a heart or mind that is filled with concerns and worries for your children or other family members. It's weight. 
It's all real stuff that's a regular part of life, but the Lord says there are certain weights that you don't need to carry. You need to set aside. Well, what am I supposed to do with them? Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus recognizes that life includes real weight, but he wants us to regularly shift that weight from us to him so that he can help us put that weight in its proper place and priority. I remember the one or a few times that I was allowed to pick the children up from school when they were younger. And they would come running out with their various bags and, you know, pieces of loose paper hanging out of the bag or more books than they really needed, an instrument in one hand and something else in another. And invariably, because they've got so much of a load that they're carrying, they're dropping things or they can't even get in the car well. And what Jesus is saying is, you, you, your life is like the little child jumping in the car from school. Give me that bag. Give me that weight. It's yours. You do have real homework. You've got real stuff you need to address, but let me show you how to carry that well. Give it to me and let me reorient that satchel. Let me reorient those bills. Let me reorient those cares. You're carrying a weight that's not yours. You're concerned about things that are not your concern. You're, you're dutifully and carefully praying for and interceding for family members who have real need in life, but you've slowly slipped out of your prayers from being a prayer partner to trying to be a savior. You're trying to carry their weight. There's things in this life that we carry and that we wear that are slowing us down. When I think about the historic encouragements of other believers who are in the stands, I can't think about anybody other than my brother Joseph, our brother Joseph. You see, he's featured over there in Hebrews chapter 11. If you remember Joseph, Joseph was given as a young boy a coat of many colors. Nothing sinful about the coat, but wearing the coat definitely created issues in his life and how he ran. Because the coat became a point of contention for his brothers. And as he lost the coat or shed the coat or got rid of the coat, he then moves on to another area in life where he later finds himself having been sold into slavery, into Potiphar's house, and it is Potiphar's wife who tries to indecently subdue him or enrapture him into, you know, a relationship. And how does the Bible say that he fled? He left even his cloak behind. Nothing wrong with a coat of many colors and nothing wrong with a, with a cloak. But in both cases, Joseph's life was made better when he decided to let go of those things. Here's the big question of the text, I believe, is, Lord, Lord, Lord what is it in my life that I need to leave behind in order to lunge for you? What is it that if I hold on to it, it's going to keep me back or it's going to keep me in trouble? And the item itself is not necessarily sinful. Joseph's coat of many colors was not sinful. Joseph's cloak that he was wearing at Potiphar's house uh, that day was not a sinful coat. It was not a sinful cloak. But there are just natural things in our lives that we wear and that we carry, that we hold on to, that if we're not prepared to let go of, they will slow us down in our walk. I'll let you and the Holy Ghost fill in the blank. I don't have time to inventory all the things that they could be, but I think you hear me, do you not? Amen. That side of the church hears me. So the big question, Lord, what do I need to leave behind in order to lunge for you? How am I mismanaging 
things in life that I am carrying that I need to hand over to you. Lord, teach me how to carry this better. Teach me what to put down. Show me what to leave behind. Show me where I'm carrying too much. Show me where my natural propensities are landing me in places of conflict, either in my relationship with you or my relationship with others. Reveal that to me, Lord, would you please? Let us lay aside the weight. Look at the next one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, let us also, just like them, right? That's the, that's the also, looking back to them. Let us also lay aside every weight and let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely to us. The sin that we're laying aside, it clings closely to us. It's not a foreign object. It is, it is near us, native to us. It is stuck to us. It clings to us. Why? Because if you remember what the Bible teaches in the book of James concerning sin, let no one say that when they are tempted, that they're being tempted by God. But each one who is tempted is drawn away of their own lust. The sins that we do, we enjoy. The sins that we do are attached to something, a, a native desire within each one of us. And so here's the deal. I, when I lay aside sin, I believe the scriptures is calling out this reality. We all have a signature weakness, but it doesn't have to become our witness. We all have a signature weakness. There are, yes, there are arbitrary, random things like you do, whether it's the something that you said that was untoward in traffic when you got cut off, or perhaps that is your thing. We all have weaknesses, but our weaknesses don't have to become our witness. Let me give you some examples from your predecessors in the faith. Abraham was an idolater. That was his weakness because he grew up in a family in the Ur of Chaldees that practiced that. You can't tell me that as he was following God and obeying him in faith that there weren't these moments where he would have felt right at home bowing down to an idol god. His fathers did and his father's fathers did. It was part of his upbringing. But that was one of his potential weaknesses, but it was not his witness. It's not what he is known for. Moses was a man who obviously slew an Egyptian early in his, as he was auditioning to become the deliverer of Israel, he did some things wrong. This man was given to anger. He actually struck the rock rather than spoke to the rock later as practicing as a deliverer of Israel. Moses had issues with anger. It was his weakness, but it's not his witness. Rahab was a woman who we all know as her, her, her profession is that of one of harlotry. It is one of her weaknesses. She wasn't doing the job. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there were some aspects of the job that she grew some appreciation for. It was her weakness, but it was not her witness because that's not what she is known for. Jacob was a trickster. It is his weakness, but not his witness. Gideon, when called of God to deliver Israel, was a man who could not believe it was him. He's like, are you sure? You're talking to me. He was a man given to fear. It was his weakness, but not his witness. Peter was a man who was always putting his, his, his confidence ahead of his competence and getting in trouble, even with Jesus. He was an impetus man. It was his weakness, but it was not his core witness. Thomas was a doubter needing to put his finger in the hands of Jesus. It was his weakness, but not his witness. Matthew was a sinner and a tax collector. Many of you probably don't even think that that's a bad thing because you just think Matthew worked for the ancient Near Eastern IRS. To be a tax collector was a big deal in a negative way, usually extorting people. They were viewed negatively by the, even, even the, the, the hypocrites of the day. 
nothing savory about a tax collector. As a matter of fact, Matthew's role as a tax collector was such an unsavory view within the ancient Near Eastern world or during Jesus' day that he was accused. For, it, it was considered to be scurrilous that he hung out with Matthew. That was Matthew's weakness, but it wasn't his witness. So why do we go through all of this? Well, look at the words of Scripture, the chapter next door. Hebrews 11, when it talks to us about the witness of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. When did Moses see Jesus? When did Moses see Jesus? So, so the Bible seems to bring us into the same Christian, the same Christian community with Moses because he was looking forward to what God had revealed. He may not have seen Christ in full view, but he had saw enough of him to say, this is what I'm, this is what I'm leaning toward. Now, you got to feel this now. God's people got into Egypt based on a man named Joseph who came into Egypt, and that's how God's, all God's people ended up there. It would have been so easy for Moses to look at the Old Testament LinkedIn profile of Joseph and say, why can't I stay here long term? That's what Joseph did. Why can't I build a life for myself here in Egypt? What's wrong with that? No, he would rather suffer the reproach of Christ than to have the pleasures of Egypt. He took off the pleasures of Egypt and put on the reproaches of Christ. This is what the Bible tells us. And so, so, so his witness is one, that is his witness, that he was willing to leave the pleasures of Egypt to put on the reproaches of Christ. Here is what I would hope would happen as you read Hebrews chapter 11. So your homework is to go watch the movie Miracle. Your other homework is to go read in, in just in detail Hebrews chapter 11, 25 plus profiles of various saints throughout history to whom you are connected. You see, the, the, imagine if you will, a family member of yours sat you down and says, baby, I got something I want to show you. Older family member, open up a, a, a scrapbook or maybe a photo album and begin to show you newspaper clippings and articles and photos of people who had done great things, great military generals, inventors, pioneers of various sorts, and you were looking at it thinking you were just getting a history lesson. You were super impressed. And then he or she closes the book and says, you know what? All of these are your relatives. These are your aunts, uncles, and cousins. Can you imagine how your heart would be encouraged and inflamed? If you found out that all of these people who had done these great things weren't just these historical icons, but they were actually relatives of yours, you would say, well, wow, that means something of them is in me. I am all the more capable of doing that, and I am encouraged. That is exactly what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is supposed to do for you and I, not to put them on a pedestal, but to actually put them in a photo album as a pattern for future believers of which you are one. You are connected to Moses. You are connected to Rahab. You are a part of the, of, the, of the spiritual lineage and the faith DNA of the people who marched around the walls of Jericho. You are. And that's what Hebrews is supposed to do for us. That is supposed to encourage us to lay aside sin. 
to look at their lives, to look at Moses' life and see what he was willing to give up in order to gain Christ. It, it, is, it is us to, to look at the words of, of, of Paul right here. It says, let us walk properly in the day. This is uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. Let us walk properly uh, uh, as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in the uh, strife or in envy, but to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh or its lust. The Lord wants the, this photo album of past believers to serve as a pattern for future believers. When I find myself at my lowest, when I find myself at my worst, flip over to the Bible and look at the historic and, uh, 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 work of your forefathers, foremothers, and your ancestors in the faith. Because the same spirit that's working in them is at work within you. These people who you see depicted in the scripture are not some sort of superheroes who have access to something that you don't. This is why you're to be encouraged by them. And do you also know that there are people out there who need to be encouraged by you in your faithful walk in the Lord? The third, therefore let us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The third let us is to let us run with endurance. Listen. We may not all have the same speed, but we all do have the same spirit. We may not have the same speed, but we all have the same spirit. We just recently had a race. Wasn't it four days ago, the Peachtree Road race or one of these other big races that we have? You ever notice that um, we are equally impressed by the person who won as well as those who complete? You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that when you decided, if you've ever decided to enter into one of these races, you don't start out saying, well, I'm going to beat everybody, man. I just want to beat me. I just want to beat the person that I used to be, the person who sat on the sofa and watched this race, not willing to get in. Have you ever noticed that about yourself when it comes to an endurance race? You just want to be better than you were the last time you ran. Maybe you don't run. Maybe you walk. We don't all have the same speed, but we do. And we don't have the same stamina, but we all do have the same spirit. If you've ever walked for any great lengthy distance, you'll know that one of the great challenges to your, your endurance is not outside of you, it's in you. You ever notice that if you're, you're going on a lengthy jog or a run or you're, you're going on a, on a walk somewhere, you get to a certain distance and you see a stop sign, it ain't the stop sign to tell you to go back home, it's that stop sign in your heart. They'll be like, man, this is enough. Aren't you sufficiently sweaty? Don't you have something else to do? Isn't your phone getting heavy in your pocket? It's not someone yelling out of the window, man, you need to stop running, you need to go home. You're too out of shape for this. I've, I've never seen anybody quit because they got heckled for running. It's the heckler in here that makes us stop running. It's also the heckler in here that makes us stop running for Christ. It is, it is something in us that diminishes our endurance because of our diet, because of our discipline, and because of our desires. Apostle Paul would put it this way when he responds to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run all run, all run in a race, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you might obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. For they do not 
not obtain, they do it not to obtain, they, these people, sorry, do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, that thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I find myself to be disqualified. Issues of endurance in this life are a function of discipline. What are you doing with your body? If you look at great athletes, what are you doing with your diet? What are the stuff that you're taking in your life? What's your entertainment diet? What's your encouragement diet? What do you listen to? What are you letting in your body? What are the predominant voices that you are allowing to be at work within your heart? This is where your endurance is impacted. What are the things, what are the times when you let the five senses be in the driver's seat of your life rather than what the Spirit of the Lord says to you? How often are you putting the flesh in check and on a regular basis reminding it that it is not in the driver's seat of your life? Ergo, this is the function, the practical function of fasting. To, for a temporary period of time, to, to, to cause the flesh to be put in a place where it cannot have everything that it wants. So it realizes that it is not in the driver's seat because its natural propensity is to be in the driver's seat. Don't you want to stop running right now? How often would it be to just have a hot dog or just to have a donut? This is what the body says. It just randomly posts up these things. And it takes another voice, a higher voice, a superior voice in you to say, no, that's not what's going to contribute to our endurance. Now, you can fill in the blank with donuts and hot dogs for whatever it means for you in your Christian life, but we're speaking of physical things, but it's, we're speaking about spiritual things um, ultimately. But why do we need to endure? I'll tell you why. The purpose of our endurance is not only to, 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 to obviously represent Christ well, but to be a part of a larger picture of what God is doing and what he wants to show in the world. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a manifold witness. There is a demonstration, a display that God himself is using your life and my life as we collectively cross the finish line as a testimony against hell, against Satan, and against all forces that would be counterproductive to the church to say, this is what I'm doing. Look at each and every one of them who is looking unto Jesus and running well, regardless of whether they come in first place or last place. They are willing to drag themselves across the finish line and to be faithful. Look at this. This is the manifold witness of God. And look at them coming from every nation and every place and every fitness level, every point in history and every time. Look at them. This is, you are a part of the collective witness of God. And we're supposed to encourage other believers as well. Not only are we part of the collective witness of God against the forces of hell, but we're also part of the collective witness of God to encourage other believers across the globe. There are people who are, who feel indebted to us for our great advances in technology because we figured out how to get the gospel message to their remote regions of the world. Whether it be through, through print or whether it be through projection or whether it be through social media or whether it be, but they, they, are, they, they feel indebted to us for that. And then we in turn look at them and we are impressed by the fact that they would walk miles to get to a singular village to, to see the gospel projected on a wall in a tent somewhere. So we're being mutually encouraged by one another's witness of endurance. And this is all part of the plan of God. 
there's something that God is doing that is bigger than just this local church. He's also doing something in an eternal and global church from which we should all get encouragement from one another. The final way that we should be motivated by our ancestors in the faith, as well as our relationship with one another, we should be all motivated to look to Jesus. That's what it says. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some of your, your Bibles will say the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. We all have Christ as both our starting block and our finish line in the race of faith. Why is that important? In other places where the Bible talks about Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, there's these, there's these couplets that are regularly used to define him. Author and finisher, um, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end of our faith. Why? The idea is to let us know that no matter what point in human history or in what point in your personal history, you came into the race, Christ is there with you at the beginning and at the end. That your total experience is, is bookended in the Alpha and Omega. That there is nothing that you're going to encounter along the race that is going to be foreign to the Christ because he is the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is there with you, whether you came in in the 60s or whether you came in the 1860s or whether you came in the, in the BC 60s, he is there with you. Whether it's the believers who will come in 100 years after us or the Lord tarry his coming, the Lord is saying, no matter where you come in, I will never not be there. I am always there with you, by your side, encouraging you, giving you something to look forward and giving you the strength to move forward. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus was not satisfied with his people just coming to accept him and then going on cruise control. He is constantly amping up the intensity of our faith, deepening our belief through all of the difficulty that we encounter in this life. This is what it means by he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Your story is not complete. He is writing a very particular story of his great power against the backdrop of your life as a part of the manifold witness and testimony that shows how God can work through any kind of people, through any kind of circumstances at any time in history. You're part of a great novel, a great work that Jesus Christ is writing. You're in the book. Your story matters. It is not insignificant. There are people in this world who will be more impacted by watching your victorious triumph in faith than they will be by Moses's because they have yet to ever pick up a Bible and read the book of Exodus. But will you live out loud like that? Will you live robustly with your faith? Will you model what it looks like to have that kind of, of tenacious focus on Jesus that is driving you forward no, no matter what, that he is writing a story in you of which he is the star you're just one of the supporting cast members. He's the author and finisher. He stands there. He is both the beginning and also the goal, the one that we're running toward. Oh, you've all seen it. Or maybe you've all done it. You've been out running, and it didn't look like the finish line or maybe the house was anywhere in view. You were losing gusto, maybe tempted to call an Uber or to call your spouse to come and pick you up or to pull over and rest for a few minutes. 
And just up over the hill, you saw the top of your house, maybe your mail, mailbox, maybe the marquee outside your neighborhood, or maybe a, a, a convenience store just off the edge of your subdivision where you live. Or maybe you, you, you saw someone else up ahead of you who was 10 years older but had done more laps than you. You, whatever you saw, you can always see something just up ahead that encourages you to take a few more steps. And the Bible is saying, would you do that? Would you continuously look to Jesus in life regardless of how tired, fatigued, and overwhelmed you may feel like in this particular moment? Because he wants to finish something in you. All believers for all time have always been looking to Jesus, even if he was not absolutely clear. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jephthah, Deborah, Elijah, Elijah, Asa, none of them had as clear a view of Jesus as you did. But all of them were encouraged by whatever glimpse they did have. And so our unique position in the history of the Christian faith is an important one because the Lord wants to reveal to the rest of the world what it looks like to be his through you, through you, through the story that he is writing on your life, through the scriptures and how they are being proven against the backdrop of your life as a believer. You have not joined a club, you have joined a race a historic race that is moving somewhere very particular. You have not just read a Bible, you are becoming a book of faith that God is writing. Can you be motivated by that? Can you live up to that? It's a high call and it is well above your pay grade and that's why Jesus Christ has already paid. The Bible tells us that it is Jesus in his race, look at it, listen, to, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of God of the throne. The joy that was set before him? Man, every time I hear somebody talking about the cross, it seemed pretty gruesome, but Jesus was looking past the cross at the surpassing joy of being seated at the right hand of the Father in full fellowship with God, he was looking past the trouble and the sufferings of the cross, not ignoring them, looking past the cross. And then we're called to do the same thing and to embody his example, to look past the particular issues that are happening in your life right now. But Jesus, while he looked past the cross, he did not deviate around it. He ran right to it and hung upon it for our salvation. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ endured the cross. It was not brief. We are told in vivid narrative that he hanged there on the cross for several hours until his body hang lifeless. The Lord was providential, specific, and intentional in allowing Jesus Christ to come into the world at a time in human history where he would come up against a government that invented the most gruesome kind of torture ever invented. This was the kind of endurance that he wanted to be displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't do it as a display of a great endurance runner. He did it as a display of great love for those who would benefit from it. That's you and I. Jesus Christ endured the sufferings of the cross on our behalf so that it would not have to be us. 
You are not going to die for your own sins unless you are outside of Christ. This is what the gospel offers, that Jesus Christ endured what you should have endured or what you will endure if you're outside of him. But the Bible goes forward to say, not only did Jesus win this victorious race, going to and through the cross, but then he is raised from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the devil, and he invites us to join him in the winner's circle, saying that we too will share in victory over sin, death, and the devil if we are in him, if we'll follow his example. So I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord today, but I would love to just pray for you for a moment if we could. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, as you inventory the hearts in the room, you know who is here and you know what heavy burden they're carrying. But I want to specifically speak to those that are carrying the burden of their own sin. They have been trying for years to manage their morality, believing the lie that the life that pleases you is one where they're just trying to keep their sin at an all-time low and keep their generosity and their humanitarian aid at an all-time high. But Lord God, you're not grading our life against an Excel spreadsheet of sins where you're doing pluses and minuses. You're grading our life against our commitment to Christ and whether or not we have placed faith in him. Not a single one of us, oh God, can, can work enough to please you, but we can place faith in your son who has already pleased you. I pray for that person, oh God, who is, who, is, who is hearing this message and wondering if this is for them. I pray, oh God, that you would speak to them in on the way that you can to reveal to them that indeed it is for them, that they can know you as Lord and Savior and stop wearing and carrying the burden of their own sin. I also pray, oh God, for the person here today who knows you well but is carrying a heavy load and it's impacting their endurance. Would you breathe new life into their strength and by your spirit encourage Lord God and lift them up by your presence as only you can do. That they would be able to Lord God just live the life that you've called them to live in light of the chapter, no matter what lap they are on the track, no matter what challenges that they face right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.